Hi, welcome to Rock Pound Talk Live. I am your host, Amber Nicole, and this is my co-host, Ben Korn. Hey, everyone. How's it going? I know. It's been a while. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, Finally got some snow in Minnesota. I, I was so busy with work. I wasn't able to get out and people were out picking past Christmas because we had no snow and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah, it's been crazy. So when did you guys get snow just recently? Yeah, within the last week, we've gotten a couple inches of snow. Um, okay. And then this weekend is going to be cold. So anyone yeah. that goes out now is going to be brave because I think I saw uh, coming up on, I think, Monday. I know it's like a high of zero. So Oh, wow. Be nice and cold. That's pretty cold. Yeah. So we've only had like in, in Ohio, I mean, Northwest Ohio, just like dusting of snow. Nothing that's really stuck overnight, at least. And um, it's been cold. But overall, I have to say it's been a very mild winter. And in general, and I don't know if it's just because of the lake effect, but um, like in Northwest Ohio or any of the northern Ohio um, bordering Lake Erie, um, we really only get snow. I mean, it, it can get frizzed freezing cold but we really only get snow like we'll get a little bit in december but we really only get a lot of snow like january february um it, it'll snow in march but it's not like we get like dumped on so like we really only have like maybe 10 weeks of snow and we haven't had any yet so <laughs> we really are we're almost out of like our snow like season um i mean we're cold all the way through you know may or you know end of april but we're, we're pretty much out of the like big snowy part so i'm crossing my fingers that we don't have to deal with more than a couple a couple of inches so right and it's, so I mean, which oddly though has been as it's not been snowy. I honestly have to admit I haven't been out collecting since November. So it's been um, it's definitely I can feel it in my body. Like I need to get out soon. <laughs> right. And have you have you done it? Well, you were in Vegas. Yeah. Um. So it was the uh, first week of December. I um, had a work conference in Vegas. Um, I added an extra day and a half onto it. And um, so the first day I had off, I went into the Katy Mountains, um, which I believe is part of the Mojave, um, the area that they're planning to possibly create into like the Mojave National Monument that might end up being close to rock hounding. I know that was a really big push. I think it's sort of past the public uh, comment era, but it's um it's this huge area that um near barstow that there's just so much you can collect um <laughs> one of our last season guests the miners girl was really nice she gave me some kind of tips of where she went um i didn't quite make it back as far as i wanted to um for a couple reasons one i was actually finding really great stuff i found some mm -hmm. really cool agates some of them have uh like calcite in the middle of them which is uh, nice. a bit fluorescent too um, nice. So I did that for a day, um, which was just awesome. And the best thing too, I saw no one. I was out there completely alone. Um, I also didn't see any wildlife. I saw one little lizard and that was it. Um, yeah. And then the next day, um, I went to go look for some amethyst. Um, I didn't get to the spot apparently where they were. Um, mm -hmm. It's just right across the border um, into California from from Vegas. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't feeling the best, and I literally hiked up and over the mountain to try to find stuff. Um, 
And then I got home and felt worse and found out that I had COVID. So oh, yeah, I hiked that's up right. and I hiked up and over a mountain with COVID. And I was like, man, I am really <laughs> feeling like out of breath right now. And I was like, I know I'm like out of shape, but I don't think I'm that out of shape. Yeah, out of shape, yeah. Um, but I did find some like quartz points. Um, so it wasn't like a complete wash. And I actually found right. out um, from Carolyn, the miners girl, she actually went to that spot the same day. And she went at like 1.30 and that was when I left because I had to catch a plane flight. So we literally probably passed each other on oh, the wow. road. And I was like, oh, like, I wish I would have known because then like yeah. we could have met up and everything. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was the only rock hounding I did. Um, and then, yeah, I've just been so busy just trying to get things set up with. I finally, after our mineral club show, I've got my fluorescent display case in my basement now. So that is my next big step to figure out what I want to put in there and clean it and get everything looking nice for that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So have you had any other Rockhound trips? No, I, no, not since November. I did. I went down to Virginia and I found a nice little gold nugget. Um, and, you know, we found some other uh, gold panning. Um, so but that was I think it was my last time. So I definitely need to get out there. That's for sure. It's been too long. Eventually, the goal is to live stream on all platforms so that we can bring our Rockhound community together on all the platforms and just rock it out on live. So, um, yeah, and I, I, I will say, too, um, with this new schedule where we are doing this, um in the winter i'm going to have a lot more time now i know i've kind of been late on some of the episodes to upload them onto our audio platform so um if you want to listen to us we are on spotify apple Podcasts, samsung podcasts all anywhere you can find an audio podcast we're on there um and with this more flexible schedule in the winter um watch for those every sunday we will be posting the audio versions every sunday um so you can make that part of your routine um mm -hmm. listen to it on your way to work on mondays or whatever um you want to do but um watch out for that yeah and one other thing too um i guess some news that happened while we were off that i didn't mention is i am officially the minnesota mineral club rockhound of the year for 2023 Congratulations. Tonight, our guest is Kayla Johansson. She is known for her role on the Discovery Channel, Gold Rush, Whitewater, as well as she is a full-time miner. Uh, she mines gold. Um, and, and also, she is an incredible lapidary artist, or I should say, a jeweler. Um, she creates beautiful jewelry, all handcrafted from not just like any, you know, crystal or gold nugget from the ones that she specifically finds. There's a story to it. So it's really neat. And we're going to be listening to her story tonight. Yes. Shall, yeah, shall we bring am. her on? <laughs> yes, I was going to say, I'm, I am, <laughs> I'm really excited. <laughs> yay. It looks like everyone's saying yay. They can see us. We're good. <laughs> hey, guys. Hey, how are you? Thank Good. you for joining us and being there for our technical difficulties. I apologize for that. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> well, thanks so, for having me. Yes. So tell us, okay. So most people know that you were, you know, on your show for a few seasons um, and that you are experienced uh, gold miner. 
why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? You know, what got you started into the hobby to now a profession for you? And, you know, how you got to the point where you got to be on an incredible show. You know, tell us about your experience and a little bit about where you see yourself going forward. So I started prospecting when I was a teenager. This is going on my 18th year of gold prospecting. So almost two decades um, of gold prospecting. Started out just panning, you know, just a little shovel and pan and just exploring around. I was living in California at the time. So I used to go to the San Gabriel, East Fork San Gabriel River okay. and go like play around out there. And this was back before they had banned dredging in California. So I'd see all these guys out there with their dredges and stuff. And I had been exploring like old ghost towns and mine shafts and tunnels and all kinds of stuff with my dad since I was like eight years old. So that spark was kind of already there as far as like exploring old mining stuff. And so when I was 17, I decided I was gonna pick up a pan and start panning. And then when I was 18, um, I found out that my grandfather who lived in Arizona was also into gold prospecting. And I knew he was into like rock hounding and Indian artifacts and stuff like that. But I found out that he was also into gold prospecting. So I went and stayed with him for about a week and he taught me a little bit more about panning and stuff. And so I did that. And then um, later that year, I ended up moving to North Carolina after high school. And I didn't know this when I was moving there, but after doing research and reading up on it a lot, I found out that North Carolina was the number one gold producing state before the California gold rush. So a lot of like oh. the US gold coins were minted from North Carolina gold pre you know gold rush to california okay. so i started doing research footwork you know hiking around sampling testing doing mapping all kinds of stuff and um got to where i was like pretty good at finding gold out there just panning and sluicing and then i think i was 24 24 when i bought my first dredge and that instantly became an obsession and so then i bought you know i started out small it was i think it was like a two and a half or a three inch dredge and then i upgraded to a four inch dredge and then i upgraded to a six inch dredge and now i have four dredges wow so i and lived in north carolina for like 13 years um doing prospecting out there but it was always it wasn't a job then or like mm -hmm. that's not how i made my living then it was just more an obsession Right. And um, it wasn't until I moved to Alaska that I actually switched to full time. Um, but I also got into like rock hounding and looking for arrowheads and stuff too. And when I was in North Carolina, because as I was gold prospecting and you know panning in streams, sometimes I'd find a crystal, and that sparks that interest. And that yeah. just started a whole another you know firestorm. Because then I was obsessed with crystals, so I started digging crystals big time. And I've dug, I wish I had them here because they're packed away right now until I have like a more permanent house where I can display them. But um, I have like really big crystals, like 17 pound crystals what? that I've dug. Yeah. yeah I, I, so, North Carolina. Oh, yeah. Wow. So I was, so I was reading or, and I guess watching some of your other interviews that you've done. So you said that you had a 17 pound smoky quartz. Um, you also had some 14, 15 pound um, white quartz crystals as well yeah. that were from North Carolina. 
Um, you also mentioned you've been to Arkansas a lot to look for crystals. I think yeah. you mentioned one of the times you had to get a U-Haul trailer to bring everything back. Um, and I just wanted to mention, because I thought it was really cool too, because um, I, I guess it sort of ties into everything. Um, if you want to just briefly mention um, the story about how you got the name for your Etsy store. Yeah, so one of my crystal digging spots that I located, um, I was digging there one day and I had this little fun thing where I would name my spots. And <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, a lot of them had to do with animals. Like I had one that I called the mouse hole mine. And then I had another one that I called the ugly duckling. And <laughs> like, I don't know why, but they just kind of all went back to animal names. So. I'm digging in this one spot that I found and had a pretty good hole going. So I, like when I'm crouched down digging, I'm below the surface of the ground and I heard some crunching and I like pop up, pop my head, like here's the hole and I would pop my head up. And there's this doe, this female deer just standing there staring at me. And I remember her just like looking at me and she would stomp her front foot and like snort. She's like stomp and go like snort at me and then like, go half circle around the hole and like stop and stomp her foot and snort at me. And like, she kept doing that for quite a while. And then finally, I guess she realized I wasn't a threat and like kind of just wandered off. So I hadn't named that spot yet. So I was like trying to think of a name. And then that day it just hit me. So I named that spot the peeking doe. Cause I had a doe peeking at me. Uh huh. And it just stuck with you. Yeah. And so this was several years before I even had my Etsy store. I want to mm -hmm. say it was probably like four, four years or so before I even had my Etsy store, maybe five or six years. I can't remember. But in 2017 is when I opened up my Etsy shop and it first started out as um, mostly just selling crystals and like minerals that I had been digging. Um, I had just barely started making jewelry at that point. So there was a little bit of jewelry I was selling here and there on there, but it wasn't like as much as it is now mostly just started because i had so many crystals that i had to do something with some of them because it was getting a little out of hand <laughs> so i started my etsy shop and i wanted to name it something that had meaning um and the only thing i could think of i was torn between two names it was gonna be you know i want to name it after one of my digging spots that i had found so it was either gonna be the mouse hole or it was going to be the peaking doe and I ended up going with the peaking doe. That's great. Yeah, I, I think it's a cute name. Yeah, and if you haven't checked it out, do. You've got some really great stuff. I really like how you will incorporate the little um, nuggets into the jewelry. Um, I've been really jealous. I have some that I've definitely put that I'm like, I'm going to get this later. Um, trying to save up for some big purchases right now. I'll admit I'm a geologist, so I know a, a few terms relating to gold. Um, I'm guessing some of our viewers have never panned for gold or done anything with gold prospecting. And so um, they might not know some of the terms. Um, listening to some of your interviews, you mentioned different things that I've never heard of before. So I had a few things that I wrote down um, that I thought maybe we could just like kind of go through so that everyone kind of understands, like, if you mention this later, then they kind of know what you're talking about. So um, the one question I have is you've mentioned uh, nuggets and pickers. Could you maybe describe the difference and sort of what those are? So you kind of have, like, four or five different 
categories with like sizing of gold. Um, and it differs from each person that you ask. Everyone's got their own opinion of what size is a nugget, what size is a picker. But I kind of like grade mine in like different sizes. So you have your flower gold or your fines. That's really small gold. Then you have your flakes. You know, they're easily visible, um, but not really big enough that you can easily pick up with your hands. Then you have pickers. They're not quite as big as a nugget, but they're big enough that you can pick up easily um and then your nuggets you know are gonna be like like these holy shit those are big <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like those would be nuggets but like when i use terminology on my jewelry though um like a lot of my jewelry i i use nuggets and i use pickers but because most people don't know the term pickers i don't label them as pickers like in my etsy shop because it messes with the search cues so, like, when people are looking for gold nugget jewelry or gold jewelry, they don't yeah. look up gold picker jewelry. They look up gold nugget jewelry. So, all of them are labeled gold nugget jewelry. And technically, a picker is just a small nugget. Okay. That yeah. that helps a lot. And then, um, since I know that you do dredging and we've talked about gold panning, could you kind of talk about the difference between, um, like, dredging, sluicing, and panning, like, those different methods? So with panning, you're basically just using a shovel and a gold pan, maybe a classifier, you know, if you want to classify it, like sift the material down to a certain size, like quarter inch or whatever. Um, and then you're just panning straight into the water, you know, washing away that lighter material, your heavies, you know, if you do it right, stay down in the, in the bottom behind the riffles if you have a riffled pan. Um, if you have a smooth pan, you know, you just have to have a little bit more skill, but it'll stay in the bottom if you're doing it right. Um, with sluicing, you're going to actually be, there's two ways to do it. Um, you can dig straight out of the river. If you have a bigger stream sluice and you don't have a lot of like thick, sticky clay, um, you can like shovel straight into the sluice box if you have it set up close enough with enough current. And what that does is it's basically a long um, tray kind of that goes in the water, feeds the current through this long box that has riffles in it. So as you're shoveling material in, all your lighter material is going to wash over those riffles and out the back of the box. The heavier stuff, like your black sands, um, sometimes garnets, gold, stuff like that's all going to get trapped kind of behind those riffles because it creates like a, a little swirl behind it. So you get this void, like a low pressure zone behind each riffle. And so your heavies will get trapped behind the riffles. Um, so you can either shovel straight into it, depending on you know, the type of material you're working with. Or you can dig into a bucket, you know, and classify your material and then feed it into the sluice. But it really just depends on what size sluice box you have. Like if you have a high volume sluice box, you can shovel straight into it if you don't have a lot of clay. But if you're running a smaller sluice box, you would have to classify and then like hand feed it. Okay. And then dredging is basically a sluice box on floats with motors and pumps and it's like a underwater vacuum pretty much you have a hose you go underwater with the hose it sucks stuff up brings it up to the sluice box but the box itself works the same as a normal stream sluice okay Just and and the one term that i've heard a lot of people use when they're talking about like some of the gold prospecting stuff you've done that i've never heard before is sniping what is sniping I get that question a lot. Um, 
So sniping is has nothing to do with dredging. Um, basically, what you're doing is going in a river with a wetsuit or a dry suit. I use a dry suit because I'm in Alaska and the water is really cold. Um, and you go with a snorkel and like a snuffer bottle, you know, a bottle that you can suck stuff up with. And usually I just take like a rock hammer and a screwdriver. And basically what I'm doing is snorkeling and fanning lighter material away in areas that have shallow bedrock. Fanning lighter material away and then the heavies, as long as you're not fanning too hard, the heavies will kind of remain in the cracks and stuff and you can suck it up. But you're just going around snorkeling and sucking up gold. That's cool. Wh yeah. which, which method do you prefer? Um, if I'm going for high volume, obviously dredging is going to make more money, you know, if you're in a good spot because you can move more material, especially like I run a six inch dredge. So that's a high volume. Um, in the winter though, like sometimes if I only have a day or two to go out, I might just go sniping and sniping is really good for like sampling and exploring new areas as well, because you can kind of get a, a layout of the terrain underwater since you can see everything and you can kind of high grade spots. And if you find a spot that you found decent gold sniping, then, you know, once you get a dredge in there, it's going to be even better because you're moving a lot more material. So and I kind of use it as a sampling method, but also sometimes I just have to get out of the house and go do something different. So, yeah. Right. And so when you set up your dredge, is that something that you set up for like weeks, days, months? Like how long do you are you usually set up at a spot? It depends. Um, there's a lot of factors to that. Uh, it depends on the weather. It also depends on what area I'm in. Like I have some rivers that I can only work like early spring and late fall or maybe some winter stuff if we get mild windows. And then there's some rivers that I can work the entire season from, you know, April until October or November. It just depends. So some areas I've left my dredge in the water and never pulled it out all the way from the beginning of May until the beginning of November. Dang. Wow. Yeah. So and, my, and I, sometimes my dredge lives in the water for like five or six months straight. And you said me. that when we were talking that you, you have all these different areas that, you know, if weather's not ideal or conditions aren't ideal, that you can kind of just go to another spot to, you know, do what you need to do. So, I mean, it sounds like you kind of do a little bit of everything, right? Yeah. So like some of the areas that I have in the main time that people think about dredging, which is like June through September, usually in Alaska. Um, but some of the rivers that I've access to, the water's so high and murky that it's almost impossible to work during that time period because you have high water from melt off you also have um, glacial runoff so it causes the water to be really murky so there's some rivers like that that all only work like really early spring when everything's still kind of frozen so there's still snow on the ground the water's still really low and it's really clear because you don't have that melt off from the snow melting and you also don't have that runoff from the glaciers melting either so there's some creeks that all only work from like end of March or whenever, you know, we get a decent weather window started end of March or early April into like the beginning of May. And, and, then, I, and then sometimes I don't go back to those spots until October, November when it gets cold again. Yeah. And, and so when you're dredging, I think I, so 
I heard someone ask in an interview somewhere that they asked, like, what was the longest time that you've, or the longest dredge that you've done? And I think you said it was like over seven hours. Is that like. I was seven hours and 15 minutes. So is that like a continuous, like you were under the water dredging for seven hours and 15 minutes? Wow. So is that, I'm guessing that's like a, like fairly long time or like, like what, what would be like a typical time that you spend like dredging? Um, I usually try to do like, so I, I measure my time by gas tanks. <laughs> so I think a tank of gas usually lasts like two hours. So I usually in a day, you know, there's, a, there's more than just getting in the water in a day's work when I'm dredging, you know, I have to get there, I have to maybe move rocks for an hour just to clear an area. Um, there's setup stuff, you know, I might have engine problems. So there's, there's a lot of setup that goes into it at the beginning of the day too. And then I get in the water. I usually try to run two to three tanks. So that's four to six hours usually. Okay. And then at the end of the day, you know, doing a cleanup, clean out the box, um, refuel for the next day. So I might spend four to six hours in the water, but it's still like a full day of work. Right. right. You are definitely so a full time. Like, <laughs> you do a lot of seven hour dives back to back. It'll wear you out fast because you still have those other hours of work you still have to do too. And it looks like we had a question here. Are these your claims or are they available to the general public? Um, the areas that I work are private. So they're either claims that I have or areas that I lease or areas that I have access to from other claim owners. And we did have a question. Um, shout out to Carolyn, the miners girl. She asked us on Instagram, um, how swift is the current that you're in? That varies from creek to creek, depending on what river or creek that I'm in. Um, some of them can be kind of mild. Most of them tend to be kind of fast in the area that I'm in. There's times that you can't turn your head sideways or it wants to rip your mask off. That's how fast the water is in some of the spots. And you gotta learn how to maneuver your body to work with that current because if you're out in the middle and you stand up wrong or move your body wrong, the current lifts you up and like wants to drag you downstream. And I've had that happen a couple times, especially my first year. I've only had it happen twice, but um, <clears throat> the first time it ever happened was pretty scary because you don't know what to expect. And so I have like a little rock wall that I build behind my dredge just to make a calm spot for the dredge to sit. But you can't like dam off the entire river due to regulations, but you can build like a little barricade just to make a calm spot for your dredge to sit. So that's what I call a dam, even though it's not like a full dam, it doesn't block off the whole river, but I call, that's what I call a dam. Um, so I remember the current lifting me and, you know, I'm connected by my airline. So I have a harness that I wear that's kind of like a sling that goes across my chest and my air harness is connected in the back. So I have the airline going to my mask, which goes to the dredge, goes to the compressor on the dredge. So you can only get pulled so far as your airline, which is usually, I think, I think mine are about 30 feet, 25 to 30 feet. So what happens when you get lifted up is, you know, you go back, but it swings you back behind the dredge because you can only go as far as your airline. The part where it can get kind of dangerous is if you're in really, really fast current, say you get stuck on something um, or your airline kinks, 
because you know if your airline folds in mm. half you're getting air so if you get stuck on something in your airline kinks and that happens that's where that can be a danger um yeah. if there's nothing for you to get stuck on and you just get pushed behind the dredge you know you just went for a fun water slide <laughs> so i i will say um so we did have this comment um from wells brian who mentioned don't mess with you because you're always packing and keep up the great work um so it leads into a few things and what you were just talking about um i did want to read you did have one quote from an interview um where they were kind of talking about the tv show and about how you were like the only um, woman on the show um and you said here i am only girl in camp and i'm like i don't have to prove anything to myself because i know what i'm capable of but there are all these guys looking at me with all this doubt and I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to prove myself to all seven of these guys. And I was reading through some of your stories. And if anyone thinks for has any doubt that you aren't tough or brave or anything, huh? um, I need to share a few different stories that I came across. Um, so starting off young, when you were eight or nine, you were exploring ghost towns and mine shafts with your dad. Um, so that's just sort of the start of it. Um going in um you mentioned your use it used to be your number one fear was mountain lions and when you were 17 years old you were stalked by a mountain lion which you had to scare off by shooting at it or near it um you mentioned also while you were in california you had an encounter with a bear that was huffing and puffing at you on a log trying oh, yeah. to get you away that ended up being a mama bear with cubs yeah, um yeah um you also said a story about how there was a rattlesnake near a camp on a trail that you were with someone else mm -hmm. and they wanted you to shoot it and you said no we can't use the bullets because of the mountain lions nearby so you pinned it down and cut off its head and then ate it for breakfast the next day <laughs> and <so> badass. <laughs> and um I, i've I'm seen there's with rattlesnake <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so rattles, rattlesnake breakfast burritos, um, and then, <laughs> um, and then you crazy, but he even liked them. <laughs> yeah, and then and then I've seen too. Um, you've been skydiving, and then the the other um story that you've mentioned a couple times, which I'll let you tell, um, was another story um with some fast current where you were crossing a river, oh, um, in the winter. Um, which you've said is like your scariest moment, which um, I think just needs to be said because um, it sounds like it didn't keep you out of the water. Yeah. So let's let's hear a little bit about her story with um, a gold rush and then we could kind of go into some of those stories. That would be good. Yeah. So well, I'll backtrack a little bit to the doubt thing and proving myself when I first showed up. You know, I'm a pretty small person. I'm maybe like 115, 116 pounds. I don't know. I don't weigh myself, but I'm pretty small. Um, so then I show up to camp and I'm like, you know, I'm not doubting what I can do because I had already been dredging full time. So I was like, I run a six inch dredge by myself. I can do this. No problem. But then I got there and just saw the look on everyone's face when I got introduced to everyone. And they were just like, oh, God, we're going to have to rescue this girl. Oh. You know, they're like, the current's just going to wash her away, which was actually really hilarious because my first dive, like, I had no issues at all. It, like, it was easy for me. But that's mm -hmm. because I was used to fast water. Like, most people are not used to dredging in fast water. 
but I was already used to fast water, so it wasn't really an issue for me. And then some of the other guys on their first dive, you know, they got pushed back. They flopped back <laughs> on their back like a turtle and they were stuck and they turned into a mess. And I just remember like, you know, I would never laugh in anyone's face, but I remember mentally just being like, haha, that's what you get for doubting me. <laughs> <laughs> and And you did say... That um, these people that you were on the show with were more like, you know, from either zero experience to weekend prospectors that zero of them were full time miners like you. Correct. So there are some people that were on the show, you know, prior to being on the show, they had zero experience with gold prospecting. They weren't gold miners. Um, And then there are some people on there that, you know, they were into gold prospecting. Um, like Paul and Wes, they actually build um, little reverse helix trommels. So they've been into gold prospecting for quite a while. Um, I think they have a claim somewhere out in the desert, maybe in Arizona or something, but um, not doing it full time, just like a hobby. Yeah. And then um, James is really big into it, not doing it full time, but he does do a lot of um, panning and sluicing and high banking and dredging as well. And I think he's actually gone up to Nome and stuff. So those were the three that like I could relate to the most when it came to talking about like gold prospecting and stuff um, because they actually understood like what I was talking about for a lot of it. And we just had a lot of shared experiences and things like that. But I think at the time when I joined the show, I was the only one actually like mining full time, not for TV. And that's the thing is like here you are coming as like a full time miner and they're like seriously looking at you like you're a joke. <laughs> So, like, what that's just interesting yeah, to me. Even, like, it wasn't like in a mean way. It was just right. like, looking at right. me like, like, oh, I don't know if this is gonna work. Right, kind right, of, right. Know, like, We're gonna have to save her, or she's not gonna be able to. You know, they're judging me by my size. Yeah. They're like, she's, you know, she's not gonna be able to do the things that we're able to do. And to a certain extent, there were some limitations. You know, for the most part, I could do just about anything that anyone there was doing. There was a few things that I'd have to have help with, like, um, say, mounting the winches on the rock wall. You know, I can't, I have no problem lifting the winches. I even backpacked one into our dive site by myself, and those things weigh like 90 pounds. And I carried one on my back into the site. But when it comes to like mounting them on the wall, I have no issue drilling and setting the posts for them. I have no issue with like putting it on. It was the like lifting it above my head and lining it up, like things like that. But like that has nothing to do with like the skill or the no. So that's what I mean. Like there was certain strength things like that that maybe you know other people had an advantage over. But then there was other times when like being small and fitting into tight spaces came in an advantage, and I was the only one that could do that. So it was a give and take. Yeah. Yeah. So everyone has a skill set that they can bring, even if you don't think it's going to be useful. It's funny because the things you think aren't going to be useful, like being small, end up being useful sometimes. And also smaller people tend to have longer stamina as well. You get a big, burly, muscular guy, you know, they're good for strength, but they aren't good for like endurance as much. And and I will say too, being a shorter person is much better for other rock hounding things like finding agates. If anyone has ever gone out with kids because they're closer to the ground, they will see things so much easier. And I mean, I'm six feet, so I'm so much further. Yeah. 
Yeah, so you're I don't I don't know how accurate it is. I did see on one of the things that mentioned you were born in California, which isn't true. Um they said you were five foot six. Um but um yeah, so um so you're on the show. Um how many seasons were you on the show? Uh two. Two seasons. Okay. Can you share how you got that opportunity? So it actually went back several years. Um back to the first season, but well, prior to season one of the show, um, somebody in North Carolina, I was living in North Carolina at the time when season one was like kind of in the works and somebody messaged me on Facebook. We, you know, we didn't know each other personally, but we were like Facebook friends that had a bunch of mutual friends. And he was like, Hey, there's a show that's looking for gold prospectors. And I think you'd be really good at it. And when I say I was camera shy, like that doesn't even come close to describing how afraid I was of cameras. Like, I had anxiety with cameras. Like you put a camera on my face and I'm just like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I'm not really a camera person. He was like, no, you'd be perfect for it. And they'd probably like to have a girl because there's not many girls that do it. So he was like, well, can I at least give them your phone number or whatever? So that, you know, if you want to talk to him, you can. I was like, sure, you can give him my phone number. And I'm thinking nothing's ever going to come of this. Like, it's not going to go anywhere. It's probably just some stupid thing circulating Facebook. Because, you know, you never know what to believe. Mm -hmm. So I was like, sure. Next thing I know, I get a phone call from, like, a casting agent for the show. And they talked to me. And then I was doing Skype interviews. And next thing I know, I'm flying out to Nevada to do a demo shoot. That's so cool. And, um... I did like this whole demo shoot for two days, had to do like a high ropes course, like a test thing and all this stuff. And I have signed contract and everything for season one was supposed to be on season one. And that like four weeks before I was supposed to go, they called me and told me that they decided to go with somebody else. And I was like, Oh, well that would have been nice before I told my job that I was leaving. Yeah. And that was and that was when was that in in Alaska too? Because I know you mentioned that for a long time your 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 dream was to go to Alaska and and mine and do all that stuff. So that was like your dream that you had missed out on yeah. that time. So like when this was going on, I was like, oh, this is kind of a foot in the door for me to be able to go to Alaska and try it out in Alaska. So I was like, okay, I'll give the show a try. And so then that didn't pan out or whatever. And. Fast forward to like several years later, this was like the end of 2019. Um, I was sitting there having a conversation with one of my friends who was also into dredging. And he was like, if you could do anything, what would you want to do? And I said, you know, I think I want to go mining full time. He's like, well, where'd you go? I was like, probably Alaska. He's like, well, why don't you do it? And then I was like, at the time, I didn't have a boyfriend. Me and my ex had, like, broken up, you know, like, eight months earlier or whatever. And I was, like, you know, I had a job that was decent, but it wasn't, like, a career or something I, like, wanted to do forever. So I was, like, there's really nothing stopping me. So I was, like, okay, <laughs> I'll do it. And so we started doing some research, and he helped me with a lot of research and stuff and found a claim that I was able to lease. Um, did a bunch of research and four months later I left and within those four months like I just sold everything I could possibly sell like I was selling crystals so cheap just to get them out of there like just trying to sell everything I could possibly sell and 
got rid of all my furniture and got rid of like everything except for like my clothes, my mining stuff, um, my jewelry stuff and my pets and loaded up the trailer and in the end of March. So that was around Thanksgiving, end of November of 2019. In the end of March of 2020, I left. And, and, and I, I take and it you, you are happy with that decision. Yes. Yes, that's great. And so yeah. how long were you living in Alaska then before you got the call to say, hey, we've kind of changed our mind. Would you like yeah. to be on the show? And I want to know how that conversation happens. Because I don't know about me. I'd be like, well, you didn't want me at first. Like, so like, I want to kind of know how, how did you handle that? So the reason I didn't get it in the first place was because of Dustin and you know, he judged me being small and being a woman and all that. And his mindset was, I need these big burly dudes. Like I, I can't have some people for the people who don't know who Dustin is, who is he? So he's like the main guy on the show. Okay. Yeah. So he didn't want me because, you know, I was female and small and he just saw me as a weakness, I guess, or a weak, the weak link in a team. Mm -hmm. Little did he know. Um, so I had been living in Alaska. I had already done a whole year of mining on my own full time. And I get a message from Ryan, who was one of the guys that used to be on the show. I think he did like two seasons or something. Um, he messaged me. He was no longer on the show anymore. And he's like, hey, like I know you and Dustin didn't really hit it off that great in the beginning, but he's looking for people. And I recommended you and he said he'd be willing to talk to you again. And I was like, you know, I can't guarantee I'm going to say yes, mm -hmm. but I'll at least see what he has to say about it. Right. So Dustin calls me and, you know, the conversation went really well. But the biggest thing I was having an issue with was like, I was already fulfilling my own dream. Like the whole point in me wanting to do it in the beginning was like a foot in the door to get to Alaska and like experience it and go mining in Alaska. Well, I had already been doing that on my own. So that draw to doing the TV part was no longer there. Um, so then I had this little like internal conflict of like, do I give up being my own boss to go work with a bunch of people when I'm already doing what I set out to do? Right. And so it took a lot of like deep thinking and I almost actually turned it down. And I could, I could I could understand that and I, just following you and just your energy I could totally see yeah like I could totally understand that yeah so I was like well you know my dream and my goal was to be able to mine full time and to get to Alaska and you know have my own operation going and I already have that so it's like there wasn't as much of a draw to do the TV side. Cause I was right. never like, I have to be famous or I want to be on TV. Like that was never really a thought that crossed my mind. Um, I enjoy mining for mining. Like I don't enjoy mining for like the publicity or like the fame or the attention. Like, yeah, it's nice from a business standpoint, selling my jewelry. Yeah. But besides right. that, like it's not my goal to be famous. Yeah. And you've got some of the um, pieces of gold from that you collected while on the show in jewelry and things on your Etsy shop too. There's a few pieces left that have some from the show, but most of it now is transitioned to personal gold that I've mined myself. 
but like two years ago, if you had gone on there, there was a lot more, but you know, I've sold most of it. I still have gold from that first season that I did, but some of it I'm not making into jewelry. Some of it I'm just holding on to. Um, so yeah, at the end of the conversation with Dustin, you know, he was like, do you have any questions? And the conversation had gone really well. And I was like, well, I do actually have a question. You're probably not going to like it. <laughs> I was like, you know, back when we met before season one, the reason you didn't want me on is because, you know, I'm a pretty small person and you didn't really want a woman on the crew. And I said, I know, you know, times have changed, but last I checked, I'm still a woman. So is that going to be a problem? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I was just blunt with him. I was like, so if you're going to have any issue with that, you might as well just tell me now. Yeah, right. And so he was like, no. Back then, I just figured, you know, I needed the biggest, burliest men for, like, strength and all that. And as I've been doing this, I kind of realized, like, it takes more than just one type of person because you have yeah. different people with different skill sets and stuff like yeah. that. So you know, the conversation went well, but I still hadn't given him an answer. I told him I'd have to think about it. Yeah. And then, that's not fair. Yeah. And I thought about it for a few weeks. Like, it wasn't like an immediate yes or no thing. It was like, I was really thinking about it. I was losing sleep over it. Like, do I really give up what I already have going to go do this? I remember I was typing up a message to decline the offer. And my boyfriend called me in the middle of me typing it before I'd sent it. And he said, what are you doing? I said, oh. I'm just telling them, thank, you know, thank you for the opportunity, but I think I'm going to pass on the offer. And my boyfriend was the one that was like, I really think you should reconsider that. He's like, because if you don't like it, you don't have to go back, but at least do one year yeah. and see how it goes. He's like, because I feel like you'll regret it yeah. if you at least don't try it. And I was like, you know what? You're right. So I erased my message and sent an acceptance letter. <laughs> And that's how that happened. And now, would you say overall that you were glad that you made that decision? From a financial standpoint, yes. Because, I mean, it's no secret you get paid by the show. Mm -hmm. Like You don't make a TV show for free. Right. Um, but, and for like publicity for my jewelry business. it like was exposure? Really, yeah, the exposure was really good. But I think it affected me with my happiness. Mm because it took away from my true goals, which was building my jewelry business. It, like it took away and helped. It was a weird like conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like it just took away from a lot of things that I wanted to accomplish in my own personal mining as well. And I think that was a big thing. And then um, some of the people, I got along great with most of the guys. Some of the people were very difficult to work with. And it's not like you're just going to a nine to five job where you punch in, punch out, and then you're back to your normal life. You're living there for five months straight in a tent with all, the, like you have your own tent, but you're in a camp with all these people. So if you don't get along, that's a long five months. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Luckily, most of the guys are really awesome and I did get along with most of them really well. Um, but I don't know. There's, you know, TV mining isn't exactly the same as real mining. Because you have to do things differently yeah. for the camera and then happen to do things the way somebody else wants. Because, you know, I was running a crew, but I wasn't like running the operation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. We, yeah we, 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 somebody else wants to do it. And 
they weren't always like, in my opinion, the best ways to do things. So, and that's yeah, frustrating we, when you know there's a better way, and you're yeah, saying, that was a little hard. And yeah, we then, heard very similar things from uh, Ellie Ringo, who was our season two episode one guest, who she was on um, the. On uh, a Greenland gold one. Yeah. Yeah. She had very similar things where, you know, um, some of the same issues as being a woman and then also um, her being an economic geologist. And then some people just kind of doing gold things for fun. Didn't quite know, you know, sort of some of the things um, and sort of the, you know, some of the same issues of, you know, really having to show people like, Hey, I know what I'm doing and you should listen to me because, you know, whatever you think, just because I'm a woman or, I don't look like I should, you know, what you think I, you know, a minor should look like or whatever, that yeah. stuff doesn't matter. So like, I see a lot of like some of the very same similarities. And I think like both of them, like it's shown, like you definitely have a following and all the comments that I've seen come through are, you know, Kayla was great on the show and you've yeah. had so much great exposure to really show people um, that you knew all along that you were badass and could handle yourself and do all the things that, Whenever someone looks at you, they might think, oh, she's this little, you know, thing that, you know, what does she know? And then, you know, you've known it all along. Yeah, it's funny because um, when I first moved to where I live here, I live in a really tiny town. It's like 200 people. So it's really, really like everybody knows who everybody is here. Um, and when I first moved here, for the longest time, nobody really knew who I was because I kept to myself and I was just mining. So unless I went to the little store or, went to the post office or something, people just didn't see me because I was mining the whole time. And I remember, funny story, the lady that works at the post office, um, she didn't tell me this until later, but she was like, man, when you first showed up here, she was like, there's no way this girl's gonna make it through the first year. <laughs> like just when she first met me, cause I'm small. She's like, this is a Southern <laughs> girl. And there's just like, she tried to mama bear me and like watch yeah. her. You know, but she's like, this girl's never going to make it. You know, she didn't tell anyone that, but she was thinking that in her head. Like, this girl's never going to make it. And then the next year, after she got to know me and, like, saw the things I was doing and all this stuff, she was like, she told me, she was like, I have to admit this to you. She's like, when you first got here, I was like, this girl's never going to make it. She'll be here maybe a year and then she'll be out of here. And she was like, I eat my words. <laughs> like, you're the exact opposite of what I thought by just looking at you. So a lot of people are quick to judge just by somebody's looks or, you know, if they're small framed or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like you can't judge a book by its cover because the inside doesn't always match the outside. That's right. Yeah. And, and so I, I mentioned some of the different experiences you've lived through um, and just different things you've done. Um, I do want to go back then to, the one experience you had crossing the river in the winter um, that you had that you, you said was like your scariest moment. Um, and then sort of yeah. like after that. So if, if you want to touch on that now. Yeah. So that was pretty terrifying. Actually, it was really traumatic. Um, I was out sniping with my boyfriend and it was like one of the first times that we had gone out. Like we had gone a couple times, but this, particular trip we were doing an entire canyon length so we were doing like a like a two mile or mile and a half stretch of river that day so it was like a big excursion that day and 
there was still quite a bit of ice on the river like on the sides of the river there was still like 10 feet of ice so we were crossing and we had had no issues all day long we're crossing and we were in this one spot that had pretty swift current and the water wasn't like necessarily deep like when you stand your feet could touch like it wasn't deep water but it was so fast right there and he crossed first and he started climbing up the ice bank and while he's still climbing i had crossed and i'm smaller than he is and the current caught me a little bit more than it did him and i was able to grab onto a rock once i got to the other side i was able to grab onto a rock but it was so slick underneath like i couldn't get my footing no matter how much i tried to plant my feet they just kept sliding out from under me and the current was so swift so i'm like holding on to this like rock that's like really thin like sticking up kind of like this so i'm like holding on with one hand and i'm like slapping the water and you know we have full face snorkel masks on so it's hard to hear you got really thick dive hoods on so you know your hearing isn't your normal crisp hearing and he's up climbing up the ice bank and i'm like holding on to this rock and i'm like slapping the water i'm slapping the ice i'm trying to yell so that you can hear me but you know the yelling is going through a snorkel so it sounds muffled and so I'm sitting there like yelling, doing anything I could to try to get his attention while I'm still trying to hold on to this rock with one hand. Finally, he realizes what's going on. He turns around and he's like, oh crap, you know, so this is bad. Turns around, he like leans over the ice, like reaches for me. And his hand was like a few inches from my hand when I lost my grip hmm. on the rock. And the current pushed me under the ice. <gasps> <laughs> And I, there was only like a gap like this, like an inch between the water and the ice. And it's not like if you got stuck, you could break the ice. It was 10 to 12 feet thick. Oh like it was an ice and snowbank. It wasn't just like a thin layer of ice that you could punch through. So luckily, like it just pinched. So the, the river was kind of wide. The ice bench came out into this like narrow channel. So there was a narrow channel in between water and then it opened up farther downstream but where the current was the way it pushed me it pushed me under that big cove of ice that came out mm -hmm. so all i can remember thinking is like oh sh like what if there's a downed tree or the bedrock juts up or there's a big boulder or something you know i'm not gonna mm -hmm. be able to swim upstream with this current pushing on me so i'm like thinking to myself like i'm gonna get stuck under here and mm -hmm it feels like when you're in a situation like that it feels like a lifetime yeah you know because everything's in slow motion i'm sure i was only under there for like 30 seconds or something <laughs> i don't know yeah i honestly have no idea how how long i was under there but it was long enough for me to swallow a ton of water and then finally i popped out the other side and he comes running because he was just as soon as he realized what happened he realized he couldn't get me so he's running down the ice to try to meet me at the other side, hoping that I pop out. And I finally pop out and he comes and grabs me and like pulls me out of the water. And then we just like sit up on the snow bank for like 30 minutes. And like, I just remember like my legs would not stop shaking and it wasn't because I was cold. It was just the adrenaline and like shock. Shock. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there like, oh crap. I just like got pushed under the ice. That's, it's a lot to process. Yeah. Yeah. So then we just sat there and we had a beer. <laughs> Cause I was like, had to calm down because yeah. all I wanted to do at that point was leave. Like I just wanted to get out of there, but we were in a Canyon and there's limited access to get in and out. So we still had to traverse the river for like a couple hours 
So you had to get over that water fear quick and get right back in. So we sat there for 30 minutes, but we're like, we can't sit here too long because the days are short in the winter. Like right. we sit here too long. It's going to get dark. We aren't going to be able to see our exit point. So we sat there for like 30 minutes, took a break and then just went right back at it. And I just remember like every time crossing, like feeling like I'm going to have a panic attack. Right. Like I did not want to be in the water anymore that day, but I knew I had to, to get out of there. So it was a uh, quite the experience. So after it was all over, I was like, okay, I'm fine. I'm okay. I get home. I'm like, I'm going to eat some hot food. I'm going to take a hot shower and all this adrenaline, you know, pumping. I'm going to pass out hard tonight. Wrong. Lay down. Every time I start like drifting off to sleep, all I can see is what it looked like under the ice. Oh, <laughs> and I'd wake no. up panicking, like PTSD, like terrible all night long. Like I'd sleep for like 10 minutes, maybe like start falling asleep and then see that and wake up like in a panic, like, oh crap. So I remember like two days later, I realized that it wasn't something I was just going to get over. Like I was having like some serious like PTSD going on. Yeah. And it was funny because I didn't realize that it was going to affect me that way. Like when we left, I was like, okay, it's over, whatever. Right. Right. It wasn't until I got home and laid down and like calmed down that it, like pro everything processed. And then I was like, oh crap, this is something that's like, that was actually really serious. I almost died. Right. And so it was kind of like a serious like freak out thing. And I was like, I'm not going to get over this if I don't get back in the water. Yep. So like two days later, we went back and did it again. And I just forced myself and I've been practicing and like, Sometimes I'll go to the river by myself and just practice swimming across just to get over the fear of like swimming across the current anymore. Good for you. It's like when I'm diving, when I'm dredging and I have weights on, I'm underwater. That experience doesn't affect me at all. Like mm -hmm. I'm 100% comfortable doing that. It's the swimming because I feel like I have no control. Mm. Yes. Because you know those weights are, are holding you down. Because yeah, I'm on the bottom, you know. I don't know. I'm really comfortable when I'm dredging and when I have weights on and I'm under there and I have air on, like I'm really comfortable. Like it doesn't scare me at all, but it's swimming. That's what started bothering me was swimming. So even swimming across, even if it was like calm current, I found myself like wanting to like freak out a little bit. And yeah. I was like, okay, this is not okay. I can't be scared of water. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Not, when you're, when you're... I can't be scared of swimming. So yeah, when, you're, when you're doing dredging and uh, dredging under the water, like, yeah. And it's, uh, I, I mean, it's just crazy to me, like you saying how, like, your biggest fear used to be being stalked by a mountain lion. And then at 17, you're stalked by a mountain lion and scare them off. And you're you're still out hiking and, and going into the wilderness and doing things like that. And then you have this near-death experience crossing a river. And then two days later, you're like, I'm going to have to get over it. And I'm going to have to push myself and get through it. Like, I think it just speaks to, like, how just tenacious oh, yeah. and brave and like just tough you yeah. are to be able to just say, I'm not going to let anything keep me down. I'm just going to do it. And it, I'm, you know, I'm Kayla. Stoic. I mean, Stoic is like the perfect word I can think of. Like just, yeah, absolutely. It took a while to get over that. And I wouldn't say that I'm 100% over it, but it's to the point where like, I don't freak out thinking about crossing the river now. And like walking across doesn't bother me. You know, like I said, being underwater dredging doesn't bother me. Walking across fast currents doesn't bother me. It's the swimming part because that's how it happens to me swimming. Mm -hmm. And when you are swimming, 
you really don't have control of the situation. Like you're at the water's mercy when you're swimming. And so I think that was the biggest part of it. And so that was almost two years ago that happened now. Yeah. I was going to ask how long ago was that? So you're still, you're still working through that. Yeah. But now like I can go sniping by myself and I'll, I'll swim across the river. Oh, good for you. By myself now. So that's fine. Um, yeah, I just notice like my heart starts fluttering a lot faster, even though I'm not working that hard. So there's still that little bit of like panic in the background, but, but I just tell shut up. <laughs> and you've had enough positive experiences afterwards though, that you can calm yourself down. Like I did this last time and it was okay, you know? So like, you can still like, you know, your body is now like you had that bad experience, but you've also had positive outcomes. So like you're able to like still work forward through it. And that's great because a lot of us, when we have these negative experiences in life, we don't ever want to go through those again. And so we develop these fears and we stop ourselves from moving forward. So like, I, I think just that experience alone. That's, that's what I was afraid of. It's yeah. like, I don't want my fear to stop me from doing something that I love. That I love. Yes. So kick that fear's ass. Yes. And I, I think the process of kicking its ass, but it doesn't stop me. <laughs> right. But, and you know, so many people can just take that experience that you had and apply it to so many other things in life. And like, how wonderful is that? That you can, you just, even as somebody that as a follower, you know, they follow you just hearing this story, you know, like just hearing kind of people's story and like things that they've struggled with and how they've gotten through it is just so inspirational. So like, like good for you. That's well, it's like, like that saying, you know, when you fall off the horse, you just you have to get right back on. Yeah. In yeah. yeah. And, and I've, I mentioned this before, too. But, you know, I, I've heard the phrase, you know, like even even if you're afraid of something, do it afraid. Like it's OK to be afraid. Just do it afraid. And I think that, you know, it's the same kind of thing. You know, get back on the horse. If you're afraid, like go ahead and like it's OK to be afraid. Do it afraid. Like. Kind yeah, of kick, kick yourself in the ass, sort of a. Yeah, a, don't a ever moment. let fear be the reason that you didn't live your life. Yes, 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 yeah. I mean, you. I mean, one of the things that would scare me would be moving fifty eight hundred miles across a continent to go to a state that you know you probably don't have connections to, or you know whatever, and you've set up a good life in North Carolina, and then you know you decide I'm going to try and do my dream, you know, I'm sure it wasn't an easy choice, especially because I think you said that was uh, 2020. So that was like during COVID. COVID. Yeah. Oh, I shut the Canadian border down like a week before I left. I wasn't supposed to actually leave until a month later than I actually left. So I wasn't supposed to leave till towards the end of April. And I ended, ended up leaving at like the end of March because COVID had just hit. They shut down the border, and I didn't even know if I was going to make it through the border. So I remember showing up to the Canadian border, had all my paperwork for like my lease and proving where I was going, um, you know, my passport, everything that I needed, all the certificates for my animals, shots, and all that. And then they almost didn't let me through because the border was closed to all non essential travel. Mm. And I told the guy, I was like, well, I said, I've given up my job, I've given up my house. Mm. Like, if you don't let me through, I'm going to camp right here because I'm technically homeless now. Right. <laughs> and okay. so he's like, well, let me call my supervisor and see what he thinks. And he was on the phone with him for quite a while and sitting in the waiting room, like just freaking out. Like, what if he doesn't let me through? Like, I don't really have a plan B. Cause like when I started planning this trip, COVID wasn't a thing. Right. Like it had just came out of nowhere and just within a month, like 
the world went crazy, you know? Yeah. 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 So I was just like, you know, I didn't have a plan B because no one nope, could have been expecting. That. Right. <laughs> like yeah. nobody would have seen it coming. So I'm just yeah. like, okay. I told him, I was like, if you don't let me through, like I gave up my house, I gave up my job, like everything I own is in that truck right there. Like I'm just going to camp right here. Yeah. Until you let me through. <laughs> well, it must have meant to be because they let you go through. So, well, he called his supervisor, or whatever, and the guy's like, "Well, just use your best judgment." So he came back. He said, "I'll let you through, but I need to see your phone." And I'm like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go through all your text messages, your Facebook messages, your Instagram messages, any messages you have, to make sure that you're not like talking with somebody in Canada and like." planning to hide out in Canada because we're worried about Americans coming up here and hiding <laughs> out from the virus because at the time they had a low infection rate, I guess. Yeah. This was like the beginning, you know, and well, I'm like and, and there's free healthcare too. We can put that in there too. Yeah. I guess. But I'm just like I'm not planning to hide out in Canada. I'm on my way to Alaska. Like I showed you my lease. Like I have all the paperwork going going to Alaska. So he went through all my phone and you know that was a little embarrassing. Yeah. Wait a minute, like like he was like, why are all these pictures of gold and rocks on your phone? And <laughs> he asked me, he was like, why are you some social media influencer for gold mining? <laughs> like, well, actually, <laughs> no, I just post stuff that I like. like <laughs> but yeah, so that was weird going through Canada. And like, I felt like I was like some criminal, like evading the law or something. Cause like, the whole way through, I remember them telling me, you can't stop at the grocery store. You can't go in a restaurant and eat. Like, you have to go through mm. a drive through And I don't know, like, how many people watching have, like, actually driven that drive from, like, all through Canada to Alaska. But there's not many drive throughs No, like, I, I think there, there's some... there's. There's some statistic like 75 or 80 percent of like the population of Canada lives within like 100 miles of the U.S. border. So I know if once you get probably past the border, there's nothing, I'm guessing. I mean, there's a few like bigger towns that I hit like um, what was it? I hit Grand Prairie. Um, trying to think. I think Canton was the first town that I was in. I stopped in Jasper like places that have like normal gas stations, but a lot of the places along the way are like these little mom and pop like lodges that just have a seasonal lodge. So like in the summer, they get a lot of business, mm -hmm. but in the winter they're, they don't, but it's just like a little tiny gas station. And they right. wanted me to like pay at the pump at everything so that I wouldn't have, you know, people contact or whatever. Mm. But a lot of those little mom and pop gas stations have like the really old gas pumps from like the eighties that don't take cards outside. So you have to go inside. The right. <laughs> but I remember, um, can't remember what town I was in, but I remember I desperately needed like cat litter. Cause I had two cats in the truck with me and the trip was taking longer than I expected. So I was like, I'm going to need cat litter or my truck's going to be stinking. <laughs> 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 so I'm like, I have to get cat litter. Like I can go without, but I have to have cat litter. <laughs> So I remember I pulled into this grocery store and I knew I wasn't supposed to go in there, but I was like, I have, I have to have cat litter. And I remember they had this huge piece of cardboard in the door and it was like in big bold letters. If you do not live here or if you've been out of this town in the last 10 days, do not come in. 
Oh, geez. And so I'm like, great. Feeling like I have to hide, you know? So I have this bandana on my face, like up to here. <laughs> it felt like they thought I was going to like rob the place or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this bandana on and my beanie, like down here. So like only my eyes are showing like this, you know? And I'm like looking down and like not looking at anyone. I'm like, I just see my cat litter. I just see my cat litter. <laughs> but I just remember thinking like, this is crazy. Like, I feel like I'm criminal. Right. Buying cat litter. <laughs> yeah. Well, you made it through and gosh, it just keeps, you know, your stories and everything, you know, like it just keeps showing how, you know, pushing through and, you know, you whatever paths are coming your way, you you still seem to get back to the path where you want to be, which is full-time mining in Alaska, which is what you're doing now and working on your jewelry, which was from the beginning, that's what you wanted to do. And that's where you are right now. So would you say right now, you know, where you are in your profession um, and just in general in your life, like, do you feel like you're where you want to be, where you meant to be? You know, do you have any kind of thoughts about where you want to go move for moving forward or just staying kind of where you are? Um, I'm pretty happy doing what I'm doing right now. I do have some goals that I'd like to meet within the next few years. Like I'd like to buy, you know, I have mining claims, a majority business going, um, things like that, but I'd like to buy some property and actually have like a house so that I'm not like in temporary housing situations Yeah, and be able to set up like an actual workshop because right now I do mostly just wire wrapping, um, Mm -hmm. mainly because out of all the jewelry techniques, it takes the least amount of like tools and like, you don't need the torches. You don't need pickling pots. You don't need, you know, you don't need all the fancy stuff to do wire wrapping. You just need pliers, your hands, wire and imagination. Yeah. So that's why I do wire wrapping. It's just because it's more mobile. Um, so even when I was working on the show, I would take jewelry stuff with me to camp. And at night I'd be sitting around the fire working on jewelry. So mm-hmm. I just like it because it's more mobile. Like I can have a little duffel bag with some supplies in it and I could take my business anywhere. Um, but eventually I'd like to, expand more um i do have a few things to start soldering but i haven't really jumped into that yet um but i'd like to start doing like my own castings uh, my own molds uh inlay rings you know stuff like that so you really get really into the lapidary aspect of it like yeah so i used to cut stones um i was actually learning how to cut cabochons and stuff and i have some stones that i cut but the equipment wasn't mine. And so when I moved, I no longer had access to equipment. So that's why I don't cut stones at the moment. Um, but eventually once I have a workshop, I'm going to get, you know, a cabbing machine, yeah. you know, tile saws, you know, all that right. stuff. Yeah. That's my next goal. Um, just to move forward with my jewelry a little bit more to expand the types of jewelry that I can do, because I have a lot of people that would be like, Hey, can you make this kind of ring for me? And I'm like, no, I can't because I only do wire wrapping and that's not a wire wrapped style. Right. Right. <laughs> so right. Yeah. It would be nice to be able to expand a little bit more. Um, and just be able to explore more because if I'm doing the same thing all the time, I get bored really easy. Yeah. I can yeah. understand that. It- Living in eight states, I would think that you pr- must have some kind of a drive to keep going. <laughs> like if I'm doing the same thing, like there's certain staple pieces. Like I make these tree of life pendants that have a gold nugget in the tree trunk. 
And that's mm -hmm. like my signature piece that I make. And that's my best seller. So yes, I, I make I love it. a lot of those. But if that was all I made the rest of my life, I would hate making jewelry. Yeah, no, yeah. I get that. <laughs> so, so I guess like, that's why like I'm always like striving to like experiment, learn new patterns, learn new weave techniques, learn, you know, all different stuff so that I can like experiment with different designs and I'll draw new patterns and I like to just play around with new stuff. Sometimes they come out really good and I'm like, whoa, I can't believe I made that. And then sometimes I'm like, oh, I can't believe I made that. <laughs> and that goes in the scrap pile. <laughs> um, we've got I think quite keeping it like interesting by doing all different stuff. And I can see myself eventually, if I only do wire wrapping forever, I could see myself being a little, feeling a little bored. Yeah. We've got a few questions, um, actually uh, quite a bit. <laughs> so <laughs> I figure we'll start going through those. So um, uh, Justin Ming, he asked, do you guys keep journals on digs? I love the stories. Peking Joe is pretty special. Thanks for sharing, Kayla. So you wanted to know if you keep journals on your, on your um, explorations. You know, that's something that I've thought about, but I've never actually like picked up a pen and done it. But it's something that I'm planning on working on. I'm, gonna create obviously this isn't something i would like share with the public because i don't want all my spots out there but yeah um all my claims i'm gonna create a map and like pinpoint on the map what i found where and just so like when i'm 90 years old looking back i'd be like wow i found gold here i found gold here you That's know cool. and, but also if the time ever came where i couldn't mine anymore whether I wanted to like lease claims out for other people to mine or sell the claims or whatever, I'd have this like document showing like, this is how much gold was found here and here and here. And this is what hasn't been worked. And, you know, not that I want to ever sell my claims, but if the time ever came, it would add value to them. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of claims don't have that kind of documentation. Yeah. Right. So, and so that's not the reason like, Monetary value isn't the reason I want to do it. I just have fun doing mapping and stuff. And I think for myself personally, it would be a really cool keepsake and something to look back on like when I'm older. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I know you've mentioned um, like in North Carolina and some of the other places you've looked at, you know, in-depth, you know, maps and old mining information um, to try to find like areas to prospect. So um, I know like your notes would be like probably really good because you know sort of like what to look for when you're going through even some of the old documents to, you know, like what people would find valuable, um, you know, not probably like, oh, it was 32 degrees and kind of snowing and I was a little cold and there was a tick on me, you know, like that kind of stuff. You'd yeah. be like, oh, I found, you know, this, you know, vein of quartz and it was this far down around this rock and, you know, all that kind of stuff, which... Um, yeah, I mean, just looking at some of the stuff, like, I'm sure you've had to do a ton of research for, you know, mining in Alaska and also just all the prospecting you've done in, in North Carolina. Yeah, and, I mean, I do learn a lot by doing research of old stuff and old geological reports and um, reading about old findings and old mines and stuff like that. But I think the biggest learning thing for me is just getting – your feet on the ground and actually doing the footwork and the field work yourself. Um, exploring the terrain. That's one reason why I really like sniping is because you can look at a river and like, you can look at the current and be like, okay, 
gold could settle there. Gold could settle there. That could be a low pressure zone. That could be a dropout point, you know, looking at it from the top of the water standpoint. But when you actually look at it from an underwater, you see all the features of the bedrock that you don't necessarily see from up top. And so that's one reason why I really enjoy sniping is just kind of floating down the river, like checking out all the terrain. You see like, okay, I saw this from up top and I saw that it looked like it could be a good dropout zone. And then when you get underwater and look at it and you're like, oh, the bedrock like dips down right there too. So it's like a double whammy. So stuff like that. I don't know. I learn a lot more by doing than necessarily just doing like book research. Right. Yeah, I, I know. So going into the question that we have on the screen about some of the tools for a beginning prospector, um, one of the interviews that um, I was looking at, um, someone asked sort of some of the mistakes or sort of advice you have for beginning hobbyists. Um, so you feel free to expand on this or change it. But you said, um, I think many people go for the most accessible entry points and if they're going for the easiest access points, hundreds of others have also gone through that same easy route. More footwork, hiking a little bit further, looking mm -hmm. for areas that like maybe a few people have visited, elevate your chance of hitting something that hasn't already been panned a hundred times over and gives you the greater chance. So um, I know as far as like where to go. That. Like don't just pull off the side of the road. I mean, yes, you can still find stuff that way. But don't just pull up the side of the road and like walk to the easiest part of the creek and be like, oh, I'm going to do so good here. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that you can't. There's still a chance you could. But chances are 300 other people have thought the yeah. same exact thing and they've dug that same exact spot. <laughs> right. So like doing your footwork, doing more hiking, you know, explore, test, sample. Um, even areas that don't necessarily show in historical records that there was gold found there. Sample it anyways, because nobody knew there was gold until they knew there was gold there. Right. And so you never know. I've dug in creeks where, you know, nobody was digging and found gold there or crystals or whatever I was looking for. Just because it's not documented doesn't mean it's not there. That just means someone hasn't found it yet or they didn't tell anyone if they did. Yeah. Right. So, and so then, if people are looking kind of then to get started, um, like, so what are some of the tools then um, for gold prospecting that you would recommend? Um, just starting out, like you'll probably just be panning or sluicing. So just a shovel, um, a classifier or a gold pan, a snuffer bottle. And if you want to sluice, then you bring a stream sluice in a bucket. But so it's really easy to get into. It's not super expensive. It doesn't really get expensive until you make that leap into dredging. That's when you're spending thousands of dollars because dredges aren't cheap. Um, and then the bigger the dredge you get, you know, the more you're going to spend. But and just getting into it, I mean, you could buy a gold pan for $10, $12. Yeah, and I will oh. say, look at some of the, like, local mineral clubs and things. I know there's some, like, gold clubs, too. When I was in Chicago, there was a, I think they were mostly in Indiana. Um, Probably the GPAA. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. And I know like sometimes they'll have like gold panning demonstration at, you know, different club shows and different things. So um, definitely look out to different mineral clubs too. You might find some gold prospecting and gold panning demonstrations that, you know, I, I will say in rock hounding and in the gold community, like everything like that, 
Everyone is so helpful. If you have any questions about getting started, someone will probably talk your ear off about what <laughs> equipment and what they recommend and, you know, showing you tips. So those everyone's always, I've never met someone that doesn't want to help somebody else. I actually, when I was living in North Carolina, um, I actually used to run a guide service and I would take people out and teach them how to read the streams, how to pan, how to set up a sluice, um, stuff like that. So I actually used to take people that had never panned before and teach them how to pan. Oh. Yeah. So if you've never done it before. You I don't do, do that it. anymore, but I used to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have time for it anymore. So uh, Sam Cartwright asks, wants to know um, your gold from your pay dirt. Where does it come from? And and that's available in your Etsy shop too, for anyone that's yeah. wondering. So I sell um, gold pay dirt. And basically what it is, is material that I dig from gold bearing creeks and rivers that I personally work. Um, so they already contain, you know, small amounts. Well, they're not searched through. The only thing is they're classified down to, I think an eighth of an inch or a quarter inch. I can't remember, but I classify it down. I don't sort through the dirt. It's just dug straight from the river. I dry it. And then I do add gold to them just to make sure like nobody gets a bag with nothing in it. Cause right. I don't want to sell something that people aren't happy with. So there's naturally occurring gold in it. And then I also add gold in it. So it has a guaranteed minimum. And that's from Alaska. It's from here in Alaska. Yeah. And the batches can vary slightly um, with material because it might come from a couple different creeks. So usually I get it from like one or two creeks, which have really similar material. But every once in a while, like if I'm working a different area for the summer or for a month or something, I might get material from a different creek. So like the color of the material might vary slightly, but. It's all hand dug by me. I, I do have one random question, not related to rocks at all. I saw that you have a tattoo of a 45 adapter and you mentioned that you at least at one point collected records. Oh. Do you do you have a favorite record or a favorite band at least? Um all my records are actually still at my friend's house in North Carolina because I couldn't bring them when I left, they took up too much space and they're really heavy. Um, but I started collecting records. So I think when I was like 13 and at the time I was really big into like punk rock. So I was really big into collecting like original press first edition, like punk rock records from the seventies and eighties. And so I have a really big collection of a lot of punk rock band records and albums and and then I have like classic rock and stuff like that. Um, I don't know that I have like one record that's like my favorite record. I guess my most expensive record. I don't know how much it's worth now, but when I was 18, it was a $200 record. <laughs> so it's what probably worth pretty penny now. Um, it's an old punk rock band called Eddie and the Subtitles. They're from Southern California. And I think there was only like, I can't remember how many were released it was either 1000 or 5000 but i i have one of the original presses of eddie and the subtitle skeletons in the closet and that's oh, wow. like my most expensive record that i ever got um but i wouldn't say that that's like my favorite record it's just one that stands out because of the rarity i guess right right well i'm assuming if you've done the 
drive from North Carolina to Alaska, you're probably really good at road trip playlists. So <laughs> have to check it out. I have a lot of random music that I like. Like some of my favorite songs. One of my favorite songs in the whole world. It's been like my favorite song since I was like 17 or 18 is Camarillo Brillo by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Oh my gosh. That's an oldie. Yeah. And I have that record. Nice. I I got that record and that's how I discovered that song. And that's been like one of my favorite songs, like since I was 18. Aww. Yeah. So we had a couple questions about the ink. So that people want to know what your your sleeve. You want to share with us a little bit about your your oh, right tattoo. Yeah, it's really faded. It used to be a lot more vibrant, but I've been in the sun a lot, and I don't always protect my tattoos like I should. But basically, it's I don't know if you can see it, but it's a bridge <laughs> river. Oh down. yeah, it's like a canyon. Yeah, it's a canyon. You got yucca plants. You got a bridge. So this is the bridge to nowhere. This is the East Fork San Gabriel River. This is where I first started mining. Like the Aww. first place I ever put a pan in the water was this river. Um, so I picked some landmarks from that river. The bridge to nowhere. This is Swan Rock, which is a quartz outcrop up in the canyon wall. Um, and then the yuccas, because there's just yuccas everywhere. And so that was kind of like my tribute to where I first started mining. And, and then you, underneath, it's I just a symbol, and it says, "Not all that glitters is gold." I love that. I love That's it. That's great. So, but you've got more ink because I went through some of your like Facebook photos. Do you? So you had, I think it was like a pickaxe and like a shovel and like LN on like a calf. Is that? It's on my shin, like okay. just below my knee. It's a skull. But instead of a skull and crossbones, it's a skull with a pickaxe and a shovel. Do you mind if I show it? No, I don't care. Um, and then it says LN, which stands for Little Nugget. Um, I got that tattoo. So one of my friends back in California, his name was Todd. I would dig with him uh, at the East Fork San Gabriel River. And I started digging with him when I was like 22. And me and him, we hiked all our stuff like seven miles back and we were digging way back up in the Narrows in the East Fork San Gabriel River. And um, that's actually where I found my first ever nugget. It wasn't the first gold I ever found, but it was like the first actual nugget. Actually, it's this one on my neck. So found that first nugget and he nicknamed me Little Nugget, especially the (laughs) next summer because the next summer I went and dug with him again. And every time we dug together, we found nuggets. And I was the only girl out there and like the smallest person out there. So he nicknamed me Little Nugget because he was like, you're the smallest person on the mountain and we always find nuggets. So he nicknamed me Little Nugget. (laughs) Then he passed away. I got this tattoo and I got Ellen on it because he nicknamed me Little Nugget. I I do have one other. Do you mind if I show the one that's on your side? No, I don't care. (laughs) Okay, because I saw this and I was like, okay. That's kind of badass. So what is there a story with this one? Um, it was just something that I collaborated with my tattoo artist to draw for me. Um, I wanted a skeleton le- like kneeling down panning because I'm probably going to be gold prospecting till I die. So. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. 
I mean, obviously it's not me because it's a guy. He has a beard. But <laughs> <laughs> it's still it's I, badass. But I just wanted it to look like old timey, like an old timey yeah. liner. He's been yeah. like prospecting until he died. Like he's just yeah, I get it. He's still prospecting, you know. That was kind of the inspiration for that one. These are all pretty old though. Like I think I got that one almost ten years ago. Yeah, I know you've got more like your back, your wrist. I know you um is there a story behind the I think you've got like an arrowhead behind your ear? Yeah, I have an arrowhead behind my ear. Um it's actually a replica of an arrowhead that I found, one of my first ones that I found. I have a pretty big Native American artifact collection as well. When I lived in North Carolina, I would walk like tobacco fields and stuff and look for arrowheads and so that was one of my tattoos. It was one of my favorite arrowheads that I found early on. Cool. Yeah. Um, it looks like I've always just been like addicted to looking for stuff. It doesn't matter. Like I like looking for old bottles, arrowheads, crystals, rocks, gold, mushrooms. Do you, I just do you, like looking for stuff. <laughs> do you follow um, uh, Chase um, with Chasing History on um, YouTube? If if you like looking for old things, like you definitely want to follow him. He is he is like he is one of the largest artifact stores in the in the U.S. So um, if if that's what you get into, you definitely would love following him. I'll have to look him up. Yeah. Um, Cheryl asked, um, have you ever gold panned at Haskett Creek? It's in North Carolina. Um, I don't think I've done that exact Creek. I think that's Ashboro area, Randolph County. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I and then I've actually panned that exact Creek, but I have panned other creeks in that area. Um, and I found decent gold. There was this one little creek. It's built up now. They built this housing development, but it used to be this little like dead end road. And there was houses there, but then it dead ended. And there was a, a little stream that ran through and it was like right in town, like a little neighborhood. And you just park at the end of the road and walk into the woods, like, I don't know, 40 feet. And there's this little stream in Ashboro. And I used to pan there. And every single pan had gold in it. I never found anything big. It was all fine gold, but there was quite a bit of it. But then they built a big housing development there, so you couldn't really go anymore. And I think this question was about your tattoo, because if I remember right from my research, you found your first nugget in the San Gabriel River when you were 22. Is that right? Yeah, that's the one that I wear. And that's your, your tattoo then, too? Is that That's the San Gabriel? Yeah. That's the East Fork of the San Gabriel River. And how old were you when you found your first nugget? 22. That's cool. That's it cool. wasn't the first gold I ever found. I had been finding gold. Like I right. started when I was 17, but it was the first like actual big piece that I found. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I can even just sitting back. I mean, that's a nice, that's a nice yeah. nugget. <laughs> 2.3 grams. Hey girl. <laughs> and and so you you mentioned your grandfather was into panning. So did you learn all this from your grandfather, your father? Um, like, how how did you learn how to do all this? Um, I've always been kind of interested because I used to live out in Nevada and in California, Southern California, and there's a lot of ghost towns and like old mines and abandoned areas out there. And my dad used to take us and we'd go explore. So I remember going like when I was eight or nine years old with my dad and exploring old mine shafts and stuff, which probably wasn't the safest thing, but I thought it was the coolest thing in the world at the time. And uh, 
when I was like, I knew my grandpa was into like rocks and stuff. Cause whenever we would go to his house when I was young, he had rocks everywhere, but I didn't know necessarily as much of the gold stuff that he did until later. Um, after I had already got into panning and then I found out that he was also into panning. Um, I think what got me into it was me and my dad would take camping trips up to the San Gabriel river. And I saw the guys out there with the pans and the dredges and stuff. And I was like, Oh, I want to try that. And so I started playing around with a little pan. I think yeah, I was 17. Um, just started playing around pan. Didn't really know what I was doing. And then I went and stayed with my grandpa for like a week. And he taught me a little bit more about panning. So I didn't actually know that he was into panning until after I got into panning. And my dad wasn't really into it. Like he thought it was interesting, but it wasn't something that he did. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of sparked on my own. And then, like I said, I didn't find out my grandpa was into it until after I got into it. So then that was kind of like a little connection thing for me yeah. and him. Then he died shortly after. So. But you okay. got like, that, so, I mean, that's a great connection though, that you were able to have that with him before he passed. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, you've kept it going obviously and made a, a life of it. It's, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's, my it's, grandpa, he got cremated and I have a little like antique looking bottle that has some of his ashes and they, mm-hmm. it sits in the dash of my truck looking out the windshield. Cause he always wanted to go prospecting in Alaska and he never made it to Alaska. So I was like, I'm taking you to Alaska, Grandpa. So he sat in the, in the windshield and like he drove all the way through Canada with me and came all the way up to Alaska. So he gets to explore Alaska through my windshield. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. Does any of our viewers have any questions? I think we went through. Um, and there, if- there was there was one question on Instagram. Um, we had to research Instagram live. Um, I don't know if Carolyn's still on the Miners Girl. Um, she was yeah, one of our past guests. She switched um, she, over to um. She switched over to, to YouTube. YouTube, but yeah. She did ask a question earlier. She was wondering if you ever find gold like in another mineral, or like I guess maybe even like just I know sometimes people find gold like with quartz. Like, do you have you found like gold like with certain minerals? Then, um, I do have some nuggets that have quartz mixed in them, so I do find it with quartz. But I think that's the only mixture that i found okay just with quartz i haven't found it like with anything weird like i haven't found like a quartz crystal that had gold attached to it that would be like my ultimate dream (laughs) yeah i guess it would sort of go with all the like quartz you've done in north carolina and arkansas and everything and then now your gold both worlds like finding a quartz crystal that has some gold stuck to it yeah that hasn't happened yet oh that but that's a quartz cluster trying to oh, that's incredible where's that from this is like backwards so when i move this way i think it's gonna go that way but it's backwards <laughs> I'm trying is, that, to is that uh north carolina arkansas uh this one i dug in arkansas that is a beauty um that was my first trip to arkansas i found that one and then um like this my sister actually found this one. I took her to a crystal spot in Southern California and we were digging smoky quartz oh. and amethyst. Oh, that's gorgeous. Wow. And so I have a big rock hounding trip coming up in a couple weeks in the beginning oh. of February. Where are and you going? 
we're going to me and my best friend. Uh, we haven't oh, hung out in five years. That's right. You were telling me. Yes, yes, yes. We're yeah. going on this big rock hounding, like car camping road trip thing through the desert. So we're going to Nevada, Southern California and, and uh, Arizona. Oh, I am so jelly. So we well, rent you should Wrangler and we're like car camping in the back of the Jeep. You know, we're getting a hotel a couple nights just to like shower and like sleep in a bed. But we're like car camping most of the time and just digging crystals and agates, jaspers, fire agates, um, fluorite. Um, you should you should hook up with the miners girl because she's got so many places and tips in that whole area. Um, I know she's pointed me in directions um, in Nevada and California. I know she's done stuff in Arizona, that whole area. She's got, I'm sure, mines and also places to rock hound because she's always she's always out um yes yes as she just commented um <laughs> she says that's those are my spots so <laughs> yeah yeah no like, that sounds awesome i was gonna say it might be a little hard to rock hound in alaska in february <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. She's like, gone on a road trip. <laughs> we have like three or four feet of snow on the ground right now so there's no rock hounding to be done right now because it's yeah. all covered in like a very thick blanket of snow <laughs> <laughs> and we'll do that way until May. So, but yeah, we're excited. Um, not really doing any gold stuff on this trip, just because I do gold like full time here. And right. even though it's here, like I can still occasionally get out and do gold stuff. But so I'm not doing any like gold prospecting on this trip. It's mostly just going to be a rock hounding. And oh I think wait, we might spend the day and go to quartzite. Is it Sarah's the one going with you? Uh, she's not doing the whole trip with me, but the last oh. two days we're gonna go. We are doing uh like a two day dig together. Nice, 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 nice. Yeah. Um, are, are you I'm gonna guessing... are you gonna share like some of your journey, you know, on Facebook? Because I would love to keep up with it. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna post some stuff. I probably won't post like stuff until I like leave the location. Just oh yeah. I'm yeah. I'm really weird about posting like where I am while I'm still there. Oh yeah. yeah so, sure. so I will say since we just I mentioned it too, um, if you do want to find more information with Kayla, um, we've got her Etsy shop on the caption here, which is the Peking Doe, P E E K I N G Peking Doe. Um, she's also on Instagram as Kayla Nugget Johansson and also on TikTok as Kayla Nugget Johansson. Uh, if you search for Kayla Johansson, you'll also so, find her so, on Facebook. I'll do the TikTok because I don't, I deleted TikTok on my phone and I don't ever get on there. So anyone that messages me okay. on TikTok, I'll never see it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, you, you, but you can look at the other spots. Too many things. So I had to get rid of one of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally, I totally get that. But I'm so, on Instagram yeah. Facebook a lot. So, um, I think we went through all the questions. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share before we sign off tonight? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, get your pay dirt, get your yes. jewelry oh from God, the Peking yes. Doe. Um, follow uh, Kayla's adventures as she does more rock hounding and of course, gold prospecting. Um, and then for anyone else that is looking for some other cool rock hounding interviews, um, we've got, um, our next episode is coming up. It'll be Wednesday, January 24th. It's 8 45 Eastern time. And we are going to be interviewing, uh, Sally, who's 
a Montana miner, rock hound, uh, lapidary artist. Um, we will have it again on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And this episode will be posted on all of your favorite audio podcast places on uh, Sunday. So every Sunday after each episode airs, I am hoping to have all that uploaded um, so you can keep track of it there. And if you want replays of us, make sure to follow us on um, Facebook and YouTube. And we'll also be posting clips and other notices as well on TikTok. So make sure to follow us on all of those other places as well. Yes. And thank you for watching and for interacting with us. And we will see you in two weeks. Peace out, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.